See, this last week, we've had the English Football Premier League induct some, a couple of players, football players, into the Football Hall of Fame. Some great players over the last 20 or so years, right? Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry, or as unreal as my mum says, yeah? Um, some of you may be familiar with these players, some may not. But this, this is a recognition and honouring of a professional footballer player's life, right? It's the first of, of, of its kind in English football. And these two football players, Ryan Giggs and Thierry Henry, right? Amongst, amongst one of the best that I've seen certainly play. And this is a blurb on the, on the website about these special groups of players that they're, they're about to induct, right? So welcome to the home of the greats, a place for celebration, admiration, and nostalgia, for moments made famous and players famous for having made them. But we see another player, Ryan Giggs, who was also meant to be inducted into this Hall of Fame. But uh, recently, he's been convicted uh, or certainly charged of a few misconducts in the way he's treated women. And so his place in the Hall of Fame is now put on hold. We see, even in other walks of life, we see this week, this past week, we see um, Mr. Clark, um, a famous actor, who, Trevor Clark, who, who, due to his misconduct as well, he was due to receive, receive an award, but the, the BAFTAs have had to actually um, to stop that process because of his conduct, because of his way of life. See, these people's personal lives seems to have impacted on their qualification for awards or a hall of fame. And recent revelations, as we see, concerning Ryan Giggs, has meant there's been a huge gulf between his abilities on the football pitch and his way of life, his character. Today, we want to look at two lives, two faithful lives, Two individuals who themselves have been inducted into the hall of faith, so to speak, in Hebrews chapter 11. They were not great or renowned just because of their works, but something greater still, which conceived their works, namely faith, their faith, their life of faith. Living an active faith was at work in the lives of Abraham and Rahab, as we will read in James. See, last sermon, we looked at James and how he considered this question. Can your faith save you? We looked at what dead faith looks like. That faith not accompanied by good works is dead. And we also looked at that true faith is revealed by good works. Good works, what do we mean by good works? We're talking about a transformed life. The deeds that we do, the thought life, our mind, our heart, our acts of service, our speech, our conduct. This morning we want to examine further why the work of a Christian is significant. What does a transformed life of a believer reveal about the relationship with God? What does a faithful person in Christ look like? How can you be assured of your salvation in Christ? One simple point today, on your, as you see on your outline, is 
We are justified through active living and active and living faith in Jesus. As we've been going through James chapter 2, you've noticed he seems to be going back and forth with this, this individual. Almost seems imaginary, right? But he's addressing a person or a group of people. People that profess to be a follower of Christ, but have no qualities or demonstrate no qualities to back that claim up. They claim to be faithful to our Lord of glory and to love the brethren, but show partiality. They profess to give honour to our Lord Jesus Christ, but dishonour the image bearers of God. They profess Jesus as a redeem, the redeemer of their life. And that they are now under the law of liberty. And that therefore they should be judged by that law of liberty. But they speak and act otherwise. They act as if there is no judgment to come. They claim to know and experience the mercy of God flowing down from the cross where Jesus bled on Calvary. But they deny mercy to others in their judgment. See, now James throws this word justified into the mix. This is our focus today. We must firstly clarify something. You may have picked up on it, you may or not. If you're familiar with Paul's letters on saving faith, there appears to be a contradiction here with what James states in verse 21, verse 24, and verse 25. There's a contradiction, it seems, between what he says here and what Romans chapter 3 and Galatians 2 say. If we read verse 21, 24, and 25, it says in James chapter 2, Verse 21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Here lies the controversial statement that caused Martin Luther to call this book in the Bible an epistle of straw. He couldn't quite understand what is James saying that we are justified by works. That's not what the Bible teaches. When we take a look again at verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. On one hand, it seems that James is stating that believers are justified by works, a justification referring to the act of redemption and forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the making of a person just and right before the living God. It seems like he's stating believers are saved by works, meaning that the faith alone in Jesus' atonement is insufficient to save you, and rather that you must earn your salvation by your way of works and add faith in Jesus. What is often termed faith plus works, as we know, appears that way. Surely justification, as it's termed, must be a one-time act. Or is there ever any assurance 
Is there ever any assurance or security otherwise? When we consider the word justification, it illustrates a legal declaration of a believer's position before God is an act of making a sinner righteous before the holy God. To insinuate that continuous works can justify someone is to say that your position before God is not secure because it is reliant on the person themselves justifying themselves through their works. It would therefore be reliant, therefore you'd be reliant on the number of works that you do, your quality of works, your consistency of works, your motive of works, the emphasis being on self-justification. Is that what James is advocating here? Is that not what false religion teaches? Is that what you have once believed or is that what you believe right now? We live in such a self-justifying world. All you have to do is ask someone and question their integrity or, or simply ask them, do you think you're a good person? And most people will say, yes, I am. They will reel off a list of things that they've done this past week, the conversations that they've had, the interactions. I'm good. That's what most people will say, right? We love to compare ourselves with others. I pay my tithe. I do my job before God. My job, I do it to honour God. Right? I'm a better person than so-and-so. My, my church, we're a sound church. That church over the road, I'm not quite sure about them. We do that a lot, right? Is this the type of justification that we understand James to be declaring here? Or otherwise? When we look at Paul in Romans 3.28... He talks about, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. That sounds more like it, doesn't it? Justified by faith. Paul says that faith apart from works of the law. He's saying a believer is not declared righteous based on the works of the law, which is their ability to keep the law fully. No, no one can keep the law fully at all. We know you break just one, you break all the laws of God. Word, thoughts, deeds, acts. If I was to paraphrase Romans 4.21, it sounds like this. This is since the righteousness of God, namely Christ, the righteousness of God has come down apart from the law, distinguished from the law, manifested apart from the law. He has been revealed apart from the law, meaning separate from the law, and therefore believers are in right standing, right standing, made righteous through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul makes the same statement in Galatians 2, 15, 16, when he opposed Peter at Antioch, when, when, when Peter was, was showing hypocrisy in the way that he was pulling back from the Gentiles when the Jews arrived. This is what Paul says to Peter in Galatians 2, 15, 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
There seems an apparent contradiction here with what James is saying and what Apostle Paul is saying on the work of salvation through Jesus our Lord. Who is proclaiming the truth? Who is the false teacher? The ox. In fact, both are proclaiming the truth of God. There are no contradictions in the word of God. We weigh scripture with scripture. When we come to God's word and it seems like this contradiction, we read and we study. We say, Lord, we pray, we ask, what are you saying here? We allow God's word to interpret itself. See, James and Paul write about faith and works in, with different emphasis. Paul states and reveals faith in Jesus as the means through which a Christian is declared right with God and in right standing before God. But James is making an observation of the living faith. He's making an observation of the life of a Christian from its from its conception to its completion. The saving faith of a believer and the sanctifying work of the faith in a believer over time, over time. The evidence therein of an active faith is through these lenses that we examine our lives. We examine other people's lives. Are we in the faith? Are they in the faith? We must notice also that the, the use of works that James uses is different from what Paul is saying. Paul talks about works of the law. James is talking about works that result from faith. Paul is writing from the vantage point of the all-seeing and all-knowing God who searches the hearts of every person. He's a gift giver. He's the one that's given the gift to believe him. He justifies sinners by grace received through Christ Jesus, the eternal begotten Son of God. The Father with the same nature as God condescended into this sin-stained world to come and rescue us. He was appointed and sent in his office of mediator to come and reconcile us back to the Father through his death and resurrection. See, in his human frame, he's perfectly humble, he's sinless, he's perfectly good. He's in perfect love with the Father. He's fully dependent on the Holy Spirit of God and follows total obedience right to the cross for you and for me. We picture Jesus on the cross we picture our sins nailed to the cross. The weight of sin. The guilt of sin. Not just the nails, but everything. Crushing his frame. The crown on his brow. Jesus suffering for sinners. He takes your place. He takes my place. A perfect Substitute, taking our sins to give us righteousness. Our sins are imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. And in Christ we become the righteousness of God. Christ himself, the righteousness of God, come down for you and for me. 
So how is anyone saved? God saves by extending his grace to us. Not that we deserve it. We don't. We know it. We don't deserve grace. But that, was, that is exactly what grace is. Something we do not deserve. And he gives us that gift of faith. The gift of repentance to turn to him, to believe in the person and the work of Christ, to repent from our sins and follow him. See, James' observation is from the horizontal perspective. He's talking about our relationship. How does that look like with God? How do you and I, as infinite beings, unable to know all things or see all things, know whether we're in the faith or not? How do you know, how do you have your assurance that you are a truly disciplined follower of Christ? How do you know those individuals in your church, are Christians, your family members, your brothers and sisters, your colleagues, your neighbours, you must observe your faith in action. Observe their faith in action. Look at their lives and their priorities. Look at your lives. Look, I should be looking at my life and my priorities. Where are they? Those are tests. Am I living for my own glory and fame? Do I want to be in the hall of fame, a hall of... Am I living for the glory of Christ? Are you living for the glory of Christ? Are you growing and depending on God? Seeking each and every day to grow closer to God? Are you praying much? Are you reading your word? These are the means of grace that we've received. Do you succumb to temptations often? Do you repent? Do you know the sinfulness of your sin? Do I know the sinfulness of my sin? Is it because I get caught or is it because I have truly repented and therefore I have godly sorrow when I sin? These are questions that we must ask ourselves. See, Paul's context in Romans and Galatians is in relation to the Jews and the Gentiles. He was essentially saying, is the God only the God of the Jews? Is he not also the God of the Gentile? Paul asks. See, the Jews granted, yes, were given the law of Moses, the Torah, we know. The various different laws that they were given, the Gentiles weren't given those laws. Yet God, apart, as part of his redemptive work, as part of his redemptive story, his story, he has purposed that Jesus, the righteousness of God, should fulfill the old covenant that was given and enacted with the Jews and at the cross reveal a new covenant so that those who were once away, those who were once far away have been brought near. We've been brought near. He came and preached peace to you who were once far away, the Gentiles, to me, that we may have peace with the living God. See, therefore, Paul concludes that Jesus is the object of faith for Gentiles and Jews. Both are justified by faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law. That's what Paul is saying. Faith is necessary if Jews and Gentiles are to be saved. We are all justified by faith. See, James affirms what Paul teaches. How do we know this? When we read James again, verse, chapter 2, verse 23, which is actually James quoting from Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham, 
believed God. Abraham had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness, justified by faith, receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. In other words, that Abraham had faith in God and was made right with God. He was justified by his faith. When we go back to verse 21 again, we see it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What does James mean by father Abraham? See, Abraham as our father can illustrate or mean a couple of things. It can mean that, as James is writing, he's writing to the dispersed Jews. So these are dispersed Jewish Christians. It could mean that. He's talking specifically to, to the Jews. Or he could be referring to those that Abraham presides over as the father of faith. Those who have believed in Jesus. Those who are justified by faith. Both Jews and Gentiles. Both can be true. And I would like to take James here in this context as saying and referring to the latter. Although James writes to these Jewish Christians, the mention of Abraham as our father requires the understanding of Galatians 3, 6 or 7. This is the verse we were reading earlier on, that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, verse 7 of that Galatians 3 says, Know then that it is of those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, Abraham, strictly speaking, was not a Jew. He was called from his pagan life to be a father of the heritage of the Jews. Right? He was called from the Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that. And at the time, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles only came after the Exodus. We only have the word Gentiles because they became people that were Jews. So Gentiles are those that are not of the Jewish heritage. See, furthermore, Abraham's name means father of multitude of nations. God is gathering his people from all walks of life. So certainly the name of a person during this time of Abraham, we know how significant this was. So therefore those of faith are no, it's not a matter of creed, color, where you're from. But those who are sons of Abraham, how are you sons of Abraham? Only if you're in faith with the Lord, justified by faith. See, Romans 4, 10 to 12 makes this clearer in that the righteousness of Abraham was an account of his faith before he obeyed the command of God to be circumcised. Circumcision was a way to be set apart, wasn't it? We are set apart from God. So he was not counted as righteous only after circumcision. He was counted as righteous before circumcision, before being set apart. So circumcision was command of, commanded of him and his offspring as a sign that they were set apart. That was the point of circumcision. They were different because of their faith in God. So why was Abraham counted as righteous before being circumcised? So Romans 4.11 says this, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness will be counted to them as well, to be counted to us also that believe and have faith. 
And then furthermore, verse 12 of Romans 4 says, And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps. That's where we're going today. The footsteps of faith. How are you living? How is your faith life? Your faith life will determine, are you justified by faith? Your works prove your faith in Christ. So this is why James puts him forward here as an illustration along with Rahab. Faith in Jesus sets one apart from the works of the flesh. A Christian is one that is set apart onto service and worship of God and worship to God. However, faith is never apart from the works of faith. In the same way, faith, we're talking about a circumcision of the heart, a heart that longs for God, that seeks to live honorably, boldly for Christ. So what can we learn from the life of Abraham? One of the major lessons that we know, and this is our main point today, he had an active faith in God. He actively believed in God. When we read about Abraham, we observe that he was not passive in his faith. He did not just profess to have faith. He was not this, what we call easy believism. Yeah, I I believe, I believe. But there was no evidence. That's, That's not what Abraham, that's not how he lived. His faith was active. So James jumps right to the crescendo, if we, if we can say that word, right? He talks and highlights the work of faith in Abraham. He jumps right to his, the sacrifice of his son on the altar. This was a great act of the work of faith, working in the life of Abraham. But in order to appreciate that, we need to go back just a little bit. We see in Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. We see how the gospel was actually preached to Abraham. That's what the New Testament says. In Galatians 3.8, the gospel was proved to him. Genesis 12.1-3 says this, The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you. And I will curse. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham left everything behind. He left his country. He left his kindred, his family. Why? Because he believed God. He believed God. Walked with God. He left what seemed a familiar territory in order to pursue God. Because God said go, and he was obedient. That's a life of faith. See, the result, therefore, Abraham obeyed. And the Bible says, so Abraham went. At what age? The age of 75. Age is nothing but a number. When the Lord comes calling, the answer is, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. In Galatians 3, we read, and I was talking about earlier on in verse 8, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Why? When he talks about, in you shall all nations be blessed. Speaking forth of Jesus to come. 
that in Jesus all nations will be blessed. This was an example, a type. That was the gospel being spoken. That's what Galatians says to Abraham in the Old Testament. The word of God is amazing. The gospel was in the New T- in Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's always been justification by faith. We know, fast forward, we know about the son, the promise of the son. The heir of Abraham's blessing. And then we come, we know, we fast forward through the sins of Abraham. The times of lying. Abraham wasn't perfect. He lied. He did things that were wrong. He committed adultery. He told half-truths, lies, essentially. But yet, he was justified by faith. But how was Abraham actively faithful to God as we look at James chapter 2, verse 21, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? See, A.W. Pink writes this. He, he defines faith as this. Faith gives the object hope for at a future period, a present reality and power in the soul, as if already possessed, for the believer is satisfied with the security afforded and acts under the full persuasion that God will not fail of his engagement. That's a secured ground of faith there. See, Abraham's active faith, when he offered up his son in Genesis 22, he was tested. True faith, living faith, is always tested. This is what James has said all along. We can't profess to be Christians and not expect that the authenticity of our faith will be tested. There will be times of difficulty and suffering and pain that we must persevere through. That's what true faith does. It's not about getting what we want all the time, unfortunately. The Father knows what's best and what's good for us. God's goodness is that he gives us exactly what we need. He doesn't look great for us sometimes because we don't get, we suffer with things that we want, we don't get. God working in us a life of faith and dependency upon him. Upon him. See, believers, as believers, we trust and we rest on God's promises now. That's what faith is. When we look at Abraham's life in this time of sacrificing his son, the promises that God has made to him, that you will be blessed, he was resting on that, that that promise still remains. I'm going to, the, to, 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 to take my son to the altar, three days walk, going to the mountain, Doubts would have crept in. Thoughts would have entered his mind. The promise that you said of old, are they the same, O God? Are you faithful, God? You have said you will bless me through the Son. But despite what you say now, I will press on. Why? Because he also prioritized the worship of God. True faith, active faith, prioritizes the worship of God. When we worship God, we recognize that he deserves all glory. Abraham was taking Isaac to be put on the altar as a sacrifice, as an offering unto God. What is the sacrifice of your life that determines your faith? What do you bring to God? We're sinners, we know this. We bring our sins and we receive righteousness, but what is the sacrifice? 
What are you saying to the Lord? Lord, I have left this behind. To have me press on to lay hold of the things that you have laid hold of me. That's a life of faith. Pressing on despite resistance. Despite what you face. We see that active faith is also self-denial. Abraham had been waiting for Isaac. But yet he was able to deny himself the very thing that thought it, it could bring him the most happiness and pleasure. But he submitted that to, clay, to lay hold of the greatest treasure, God himself. Self-denial. Sometimes it means counting our gains as loss, as Paul says. I counted all as loss for the gain of Christ. The active faith is not just trusting in Abraham. And for the youth here, it's not trusting in the faith of your parents. It's living for Christ. Knowing Christ yourselves. Living faith initiates the works, yes. But the works are only a testament of living faith. When we look at Abraham's life, he sees that that faith, living faith, is never alone. It's never alone. It's active in what's working and observed over time. Yes, it can be attested by men. It can be attested by us. By checking the ripeness of the fruit, the ripeness of your works. Abraham was a friend of God. Yes, he walked with God. But it's because the enmity between him and God was separated now. Because of what Christ would do in the future. God in his forbearance had, had, had left the sins of old unpunished. So that when Christ would come, his faith would be justified. His faith in Jesus, a Christ, a saviour to come. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Do you look unto Jesus for everything as your source, as your life, as your dependency? Or is it something that you profess? It's not a joke to how we live before God. There's a time that's coming that our works will be weighed up, be weighed before the Lord. Is it quality? It's not quality because of the works you've done or your own ability, but is it quality because you're standing in the righteousness of Christ that you've been clothed with? Finally, we just want to look at the qualities that we see, the lessons that we learn in Rahab, in the life of Rahab. Some may be familiar with the story. We know about Joshua, Moses' assistant. When Moses died, the Israelites were about to now to take hold of the promised land where God has been sent, was, had sent them to, right? And we know that Joshua was then sent two spies to go to the land. But this land was fortified. When we think of, of, of Jericho, we're thinking of, for the youth, if you think of a cell, and there's two membranes, and it was fortified in such a way, it had two walls. And these spies were sent to go and spy this place. They got in and they met this lady, Rahab, 
a prostitute. And she took them in, all above board, I must say. But she took them in, in faith. She she knew of the quality of of, of the God who they served. There was something about them that was different. Could have been the way they they were clothed or, or their interactions with them. But she knew that these people were of God's people. These people that were of God's people, that the Lord God, she says, who has made the heavens and the earth, we have heard of you. We have heard of your God. Tremors, fear has gripped our people, she says to them. Please, do kind with me. When you come, for I know truly the Lord is giving this place into your hands, but when you come... Please spare me and my family. So Rahab hid these men. When she was sent for by the king, the king had heard about these two spies that had come to spy the land. And she hid them. And she sent these, these people that were to, 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 to come and kill these spies. She, she sent them a different way. She told a lie, right? But the point being that she stood for the God of the Israelites. She stood for the true and living God to say that these ones will not die. That God has given this land to them. I believe in this God. See, faith had already already been working in the heart of Rahab. By the time these spies had come to her, the Lord had already been working in her heart to draw her. The fear of the living God had gripped her and and taught her to know that this is truly God. Others were speaking about this God, but this fear didn't turn their hearts to faith. See, Rahab was caught was called forth by the testimony of God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt of, of, from out of Egypt. She was saved along with her family, both physically but also her soul was saved. Why? Because she had faith. She was justified by her faith in God. See, a life of faith is costly, brothers and sisters. It costs us so much. It costs... The life of Jesus. Though faith is a gift from God, it bears a cost to us. We must contend for our faith. We must fight the good fight. We must fight against our sins, the things that easily ensnare us. We must contend against those that speak against our God. We must live a life that is faithful unto Christ, a life that's surrendered and dependent, dependent on him, as we see in Abraham and Rahab's life. We must stand alone against things that reject the worship of God or deny who God is. See, Rahab did not count the cost of her actions in saving these spies. She was willing to renounce her people Once again, she was willing to renounce her people, her nation. Why? To pursue God. When you come back, she says, 
please remember this promise. Save me and my family. I know the Lord God has given this place into your hands. Her faith was accounted for righteousness. Her faith saved her both physically and also her soul. And we're reminded also that the worst of sinners, Rahab, there's nothing impossible for God. The hand of God is never too short to save. This is why she's also here in James. That this person who had lived this such a life before could be made right with God. The moment we believe in Jesus, that moment a pardon we receive, a pardon from our sins, a pardon from the guilt, a pardon from death, to cling unto God. As the, the hymn we, read, we were singing earlier on, the naked I come to thee for dress, to be clothed in the righteousness of God. She was called out by grace. She was delivered from her sins and justified. Do you think that, that Rahab continued as a harlot after that? I don't think so. When they came and the, the walls of Jericho came down, hers, her house was the only one still there. A home a house, a life, a family was saved. True repentance had taken place. Are we hospitable? That's a life of faith. When we see the life of Rahab, we don't often think about it, but she was hospitable to these men, to these spies. We think of Lot also. She didn't seem to want to do wicked to these men. She took them in because of her faith. How, uh, how was Abraham and Rahab justified by faith alone in Jesus alone when Jesus was yet to die on a cross? Well, they both, as we've been saying all along, heard the gospel. They received faith to believe the gospel. They continued to believe the gospel. And then the works completed their faith. Do you believe in God? Or do you believe God? Abraham and Rahab believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. Are you growing in believing God? Are you trusting God? Are you walking by faith or is it what you see? Do you feel that your life each day is a struggle Struggle against sin, struggle against the world. Are you fixing your eyes upon Jesus? He is the author and finisher, author and perfecter of our faith. Faith is not getting all our heart desires done because I believed God or I believed in God for it. It is knowing the will, the promises of God as revealed in his word and believing and trusting God. 
providentially for his goodness. We pray God's goodness. God's goodness is that he has made us righteous. Whatever else he accounts to us, it's by his grace and his mercy alone. What we don't receive is because it's not part of his goodness. That's all we pray. Show me your face. Show me your goodness, O oh God. Whatever I'm going through, whatever I face at work, when it's challenging, when I'm going through the storms of life, when I'm struggling in my personal life, in prayer, in walking with the Lord, in sin, we cry out to God. Show me your goodness, O oh God. It's because of you I am justified. Not by my works. Because you have saved me. Are you overwhelmed by your sin? Could it be that your faith is weak because you're not growing and expanding the knowledge of the God of your faith? Let's return back to reading our Bibles each day, wanting to know God more and more, to see the beauty of the gospel of Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. The hall of faith is not for perfect people. Nor is it for those with great abilities. Those people in Hebrews 11, it's not because of the great and good things that they did, their works. The great things that achieved in the sight of men. See, men and women that live an active life of faith are those that have been justified by faith. Active, James says. Active along. With works in Christ. And it's therefore completed. That faith is completed by our works. It's a proof that we are justified by faith in Christ. Amen.